Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 204 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about weird questions like whether robots are members of the undead, whether vampires go to hell, could vampires receive the blood of Christ, and whether demons can read our thoughts. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Jimmy, what topics are you going to be answering questions about today? Well, like you said, we're going to be talking about whether robots are undead, whether vampires would go to hell. Uh, Also, if you die before Jesus opened heaven, where would you go? Where did you go? Uh, Could demons read our thoughts? Could vampires subsist on the blood of Christ? Can you trust priests sent by totalitarians? How would a human animal chimera be resurrected? Should we be worried about government intelligence agencies? And what historical figure would I like to spend the day with? Oh, excellent. Good questions. So let's listen to your answers. We got weird questions this hour with Jimmy Aiken, one of our favorite hours that we get to do. Uh, The questions are weird. Jimmy Aiken is Brilliant. You thought I was going to say weird. Nah, you thought I was going (laughs) to. And every now and then, uh, uh, Nick will throw us some, a little bit of groovy music and we can make it groovy and weird. Um, I'm not going to give out the number. Especially if we have just met our fundraising goal on the previous day. I know. Right, Nick? Right? Oh, I'm trying to get his attention. All right. Uh, We did uh, exceed the fundraising goal, Jimmy. It went really, really well yesterday afternoon. People were so generous with us. It's really beautiful. It's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Uh, So uh, this is how it works. You know how it works, Jimmy, but I I will explain it to you because other people are listening. I'm a Uh, surrogate for the audience. You you be the audience surrogate. Right. Usually my job. The um, uh, the Internet has all kinds of questions. Some of them come at us uh, via email or the various other forms of the Internet. And some of those questions are weird. Uh, Many of those the weird questions are personally addressed to Jimmy because they, people know he likes uh, to address them. Not all of them are, however. And every now and then, Jimmy collects them all up, and we do an hour of just asking him the weird, the weirdest questions we've got. Right now, we're going to do weird questions. Are, are you ready to get a little weird, Jimmy? I'm ready. All right. I don't know how to pronounce the first name here. It's either Credo or Credo. Uh, and the question says, since AI machines, drones, robots, terminators, etc., <laughs> Terminators, are those real? Uh, are not living beings and are not dead, could they be considered undead in the same idea as zombies, animated skeletons, ghouls, vampires, etc.? So it's going to depend on how you define the term undead. And interestingly, this term has changed meaning dramatically over time. It was coined in English in the 10th century, so back in the 900s, and it originally referred to God. Uh, God was said to be undead because he was immortal. He Mm -hmm. was undying. But subsequently, the term has become associated with things like zombies, skeletons, ghouls, and so forth, vampires. And the idea is they're people who have died but have then been reanimated through typically some kind of paranormal process or supernatural process. And artificially intelligent machines would not fit that definition of undead. 
But, um, you know, terms are flexible. They can change meaning dramatically. And so if people wanted to use the term in the future uh, to refer to any kind of animated but non-living thing, then, yeah, it would apply to them. But that's not the current standard usage of the term. Uh, Credo, thanks very much for the question. It's it's uh, weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. Uh, they're all weird. Uh, and uh, we're delighted that people send them. You can always send them. You can send them to Jimmy. Uh, you can send them right to us at radio at Catholic dot com. Just uh, every now and then Marie gathers up the weird questions for Jimmy that come in there. The next the question comes from Logan. I do not know if this is from the Logan, uh, the one with the blades that come out of his hands or another Logan, but he wants to know, do vampires go to hell when they die or are killed? And if so, what would that mean for a person who was a Christian who turned into a vampire unwillingly uh, and also go to hell upon their death as they cannot use holy water? Oh, they can't touch blessed objects. Lastly, if vampires existed, would they be treated as demons or demonic? And would an exorcist be the one to expel them? So it depends on let's do the second question first. It depends on what you mean by treated as demons. Uh, vampires, the, at least the standard account of vampires, isn't that they are possessed by an evil spirit. So you wouldn't drive an evil spirit out of a vampire using an exorcist. But if by treated like vampires, you mean, could you say prayers and imprecations against them to drive them away. Well, since they don't like crucifixes, they might not like you saying the Lord's prayer in their presence. That might drive them away. And the the but because encountering vampires is a dangerous business, the church might want to reserve vampire encounters for specialists like professionally trained priests who might also have training in exorcism. And so you could potentially see exorcists being deployed against vampires to drive them away or stake them or things like that. In fact, in the original novel Dracula, which is not the first vampire tale by any means, this goes way back in multiple cultures, but um, but in the original novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, there is a specialist who is who comes in to deal with Dracula. His name is von Helsing. He's uh, he's a Catholic and he's been specially authorized by the church to under, he's not a priest, but he's specially authorized by the church because of his expertise in vampires to use certain sacred procedures against them. Uh, Logan. Now, in, in, in regard to Logan's first question, um, it's really going to depend on the state of the will at the time the person became a vampire. You can think of vampirism as, at least according to its classical account, as a disease that robs you of the ability to make fully human choices. So um, it's it, in that way, it's like rabies. In fact, there have there has been speculation, and you can re hear about this in the um, episode of Mysterious World on Mind Control Parasites, which are a thing, that, um, <laughs> that, oh, that historic accounts of vampirism may be based on cases of rabies. So you can think of vampirism as a lot like rabies. It drives you out of your mind. It causes you to do antisocial things that harm other people. It's trans. It can be transmitted by bite. And so uh, the question of what would happen to a vampire when he's when he's exterminated would be like what happens to a person who has rabies when he died. If he will, if he was in a state of mortal sin and didn't repent of it 
before he was infected, he would be lost. If he willingly got himself infected, he would be lost. But if he was in a state of grace and was not willingly infected with rabies or vampirism, then he would be saved because he wouldn't be responsible for any of his actions and he would remain in a state of grace. Logan, thanks for, uh, for that question. We've got to take our first break. Jimmy Aiken here with us. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Jimmy Aiken is our guest. Jimmy is senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, uh, the author of The Bible is a Catholic Book uh, and uh, the newest book, uh, The Words of Eternal Life, uh, which you can get at Catholic.com right now. I believe it's just, it just pops up. If you click on Catholic.com, you can get a find out how to get a free copy of it over there. Uh, Jimmy, it's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. We've got a whole bunch more weird questions. Back to them we go. Brett asks this. Oh, I like this. This is a good time travel one. All right. So here's a little time travel. Not little. It's kind of a long time travel story. Uh, let's say there's a scientist and he created a time machine. He's a lover of history and wished to visit the time in which the Colossus of Rhodes was constructed. He takes the time machine to that time period, but while visiting that time period, he contracts a rare illness and passes. Upon death and having died in God's friendship, where would he go to the bosom of Abraham or heaven? Since God exists outside of time, I would think he might go ahead and honor the fact that the scientist was originally from the time after the resurrection. But if so inclined, God could hold the scientist to the circumstances of the time period and send him to the bosom of Abraham to await the incarnation. So I think that Brett has outlined the two options. Uh, it's possible that God could have this scientist experience what most people experienced before the time of Christ, before his death and resurrection, which was they went to a place of rest and peace that Jesus refers to as the bosom of Abraham, but that wasn't the full glory of heaven. On the other hand, this guy has been baptized and that leaves a permanent mark on the soul. Oh. And he comes from the time after heaven was opened. And so God might let him into heaven early. And there are either there are even examples of people that God apparently led into heaven early, like the prophet Elijah, because Elijah ascends into heaven. He doesn't go to the ordinary place of the dead. It even uses the word for heaven in Hebrew. Um, so given that there are other exceptions, it's quite possible that could happen. But of course, we don't really know. All right. It was a great question, Brett. Uh, thanks for the setup. I like that the guy wanted to visit the Colossus of Rhodes. Um, I, I would like to as well. I've been to Rhodes and been where the Colossus was, but of course it's not there anymore. But the, there's there's nothing left, right? Not even the feet. Right? No. So it's all gone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a cement pier. Oh, okay. well, that's impressive. All right. Christy uh, brings her a weird question. Uh, Christy says... I firmly believe in the power of therapy. However, and I've seen it firsthand, sometimes the problem is spiritual rather than social or psychological. I have read that demons and tempters cannot read our thoughts. I know they can read your physical changes and hear what you say, but not read thoughts the way guardian angels can. So with that said, is there any danger to my clients to talk about their fears and troubles? I imagine the demons can overhear them and then emphasize or enact them into their lives if wanted. I'm curious, is therapy spiritually dangerous in this way? Um, I would say on I would say no, I would not worry about this. I would not encourage your patients to worry about this. Uh, 
the reason I say that is several fold. In the first place, the idea that demons can't read our thoughts is a matter of speculation. That's theological speculation. It is not church teaching. And my personal view is I don't think it's particularly good speculation uh, because angels and demons are fallen angels. Angels are um, mental beings. They are uh, they are spirits that don't have bodies. They're created intellects and they're able to communicate with each other. And the word we have for that in English is telepathy. So it would seem that angels are telepathic by nature. They can read other angels' minds. Why shouldn't they be able to read a human's mind? Um, similarly, human souls that are discarnate are also represented, that are in heaven, are also represented in Revelation as still being able to communicate. And since they don't have bodies, that suggests telepathy. Um, so I, I, I don't see a particularly good basis for this claim. Also, even if angels can't directly read our minds, our conscious thoughts are mirrored in our uh, in our brain structures based on what patterns are firing and in our neurons. And we can even start we have the technology now to start decoding some of that. If you're thinking of a particular image, like let's say a square, we can actually tell that now. We can put you in an fMRI machine and detect the fact based on what parts of your visual cortex are activating that you're thinking of a square. And so if we can do that now with human technology, I would think angels, including the fallen ones, would have the ability to decode what's going on in our brains anyway. Um, and I think that there's also evidence from experience that they can operate on a subtle way that allows them one way or another to detect our thoughts, because sometimes we'll be presented from, with a temptation that doesn't manifest externally. Now, some of those temptations are due to habit. Some of them are due to influences here in the world. But some of them also seem to be due to demons presenting us with temptations. And if they can present us with temptations mentally with no physical outward stuff going on, then I think they can directly or indirectly discern our thoughts to at least a considerable degree. So I think they're already a likely able to do that, even if uh, they're not though, these patients still need help. They still need to talk about their problems, and it's going to be better for them to talk about their problems to someone, whether it's a therapist or a spiritual director or an exorcist. Uh, they need to be able to talk about these problems, and they'll gain more in the long term by talking about them than by keeping them bottled up. Christy, thank you very much uh, for that question. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. Uh, various weird questions have come to us through the various means available on the Internet. And uh, we've collected them up. And here they are. Jonathan's question is next. Oh, oh, I wanted to add one more thing. OK, the the remember, everything is in God's control. So don't fret about demons reading your mind one way or another. It God's got your back. So trust him and proceed to live your life joyfully the way that Jesus wants you to. Uh, amen to that. Uh, I, I was freaking out about that. They can tell if I'm thinking about a square because I think about squares a lot. And I don't want people reading my mind well, and knowing how I don't I know. Think about I don't know. I don't know anyone who's accused you of being a square sigh. Well, <laughs> you, all right. I, I, I wanted to have a comeback for that, but I'm such a square. I couldn't think of one. Jonathan asked this. There is a video game called 
Of, of course there is, because there's a video game called Everything Now. There is a video game called Detroit Become Human. <laughs> in this game, there are robots that are indistinguishable from humans in action, appearance, and emotion. In previous questions about synths, you said they most likely wouldn't have souls, which I agree with. My question is, however, would the church want us to treat them like humans and give them rights, even though they aren't human beings? My point being, if you can't tell who is human, if you treat suspected synths as less than human, then perhaps actual humans who are marginalized might start to be treated as subhuman because that culture already marginalizes beings who look human. So in this unlikely scenario, what do you think the church is so social teaching should be. So, uh, first of all, uh, let me clarify about the word synth. Um, I don't recall using that word. To, and to me, the word synth or synthesoid is ambiguous. It could refer either to a synthetic non-living being like a robot, or it could refer to a synthetic living being. And anything that's alive has a soul. And so if it's a synthetic living being, I would say it has a soul. And if it's got human level cognition, I'd say it has a rational soul. Um, but uh, let's say we're just talking about the robots and they're indistinguishable from humanity. Well, if you're in an environment where there are an appreciable number of robots mixed in with the humans and you can't tell which are which, then the church or at least Catholic moral theology. And if you ran this up to the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, I'm sure they would agree. But Catholic moral theology would require you to treat anything that you think may be a human as if it's a human on the principle of precaution. It's like if you're out in the woods hunting and you see a silhouette in the trees that looks like it could be a human rather than a deer, you are not allowed to shoot the silhouette. You only can shoot something you know is an animal. If there's a possibility it's a human, you got to treat it like a human. Same thing if you've got uh, androids that are so perfect, you can't tell them from humans and you don't know if you're dealing with a human or not, you got to treat them as a human. Having said that, this is not a desirable situation because the fact is that humans have rights that androids don't intrinsically as a gift of God based on their dignity as human beings. And consequently, it is not a desirable situation to have humans mixing with something that does not have the rights of humans and that is confusing people about their status as individuals. So I would say that the, that the way church social teaching would likely evolve in this case would be to say that there must be differences uh, between any androids that are created and allowed to function in society and humans so that it is obvious to the humans whether they're dealing with another human being or whether they're dealing with an android. Uh, that is a great question because it does seem like we're heading in this direction. I mean, when you think of the leaps that technology is making, it, it's not a crazy question anymore to think that there could be a thing that is indistinguishable from a person. Mm -hmm. That's scary. Yep. And and there are debates going on right now about all kinds of dangers involving AI. It is a subject that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, Jonathan, thanks uh, very much uh, for the uh, quite intricate, uh, but very helpful question. Uh, oh, looks like we're going back to the vampires. Patrick asks this. I'm writing a novel about vampires. 
And I was wondering, would it be immoral to have a Catholic vampire who subsists by taking the Eucharist instead of drinking other people's blood? Additionally, can vampires be saved? And what are the moral implications of a vampire using hypnosis or similar ability to charm people into obeying him? Ooh, this guy's got a lot of things. Uh, finally, is it morally licit for me to make the vampires in my novel descended from the biblical Cain as a result of the cursed curse laid on him by God in Genesis 4. So in regard to the first question, having a vampire subsist morally by consuming only the only the Eucharist by consuming the precious blood of Jesus, uh, the, assuming the vampire is Catholic and doing it reverently, I would say that's a legitimate option. In fact, I mean, in this imaginary fantasy setting, in fact, I sometimes serve as a plot consultant for friends who are writing novels or thinking about writing novels. And a friend of mine a number of years ago approached me, I don't want to give away very much, but approached me with a novel that has this as part of its premise. And oh. that novel may get written someday. Uh, and if it does, it's going to be very, very interesting. It goes way beyond just this concept, but it's part of it. In terms of uh, vampires using their hypnotic abilities, well, it's going to depend on how the hypnotic abilities work. Now, if it's just like normal hypnosis, you could do it the same. It would be subject to the same moral guidelines as regular hypnosis. Um, so to the extent that there are legitimate therapeutic uses of regular hypnosis, you a vampire could do the same thing. If it's stronger than than real hypnosis to where you're really manipulating somebody, it gets more dicey. But I think the answer is going to depend on a couple of things. Um, I think there could be justifications for it. Like, let's say someone wants to stop smoking or lose weight and they ask a vampire to hypnotize them to help them stop smoking or lose weight. That would seem to be a genuine therapeutic use of this super vampiric hypnotism. Similarly, if a vampire is in a life or death situation and someone's about to be killed, I think he could hypnotize the attacker into stopping. You know, oh, that yeah. would be like, like the equivalent of physically restraining the person. Yeah. Um, so I think there are possibilities here. As to the cane question, we'll cover that on the other side of the break. Well, Patrick asked a whole bunch of vampire questions for his possible vampire no novel in the future. But the one question we didn't get to is, would it be morally licit for him to make one of the vampires a descendant from the biblical Cain as the result of the curse laid on Cain by God? It's not wrong in principle, but I would discourage that option for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is it doesn't really fit the biblical data. What we're told about Cain is that he's a farmer. So he, this is how he makes his living is by farming. That's what he knows. And after he kills his brother Abel, uh, God curses him from the land, meaning he's no longer going to be able to be a farmer. He's going to be a nomad. And so he won't be able to use his skills in the same way. And that's what the actual curse is. Now, sometimes people connect the curse on Cain with the mark that God puts on Cain. Oh, yeah. The mark, we're not told specifically what it is. It was probably a mark on his forehead because that's what they, that's how the Hebrew audience would be expected to understand it. If you put a mark on someone in their culture, 
it would typically be a brand or a tattoo on their forehead. And this was done, for example, for slaves or who ran away or for devotees of particular deities and so forth. And the reason that God puts the mark on Cain is not to curse him. Uh, it's actually to protect him because Cain is concerned that now that I'm a nomad, I'm just going to be wandering. I'm going to encounter people who are going to know what I did to my brother and they're going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And so God puts the mark on Cain to protect him as a sign. If anyone kills Cain, God's going to extract justice from that person. And so the cur the mark is actually a blessing rather than a curse. So God is mitigating the curse that he's put on Cain by causing him to no longer be a farmer. So none of this biblical data really fits with vampirism. The second reason that I would discourage this is that through very unfortunate circumstances in the 18th and 19th centuries, the idea of the mark of Cain got tied up with racism. And because in the biblical genealogy in um, and Table of Nations in, in Genesis 9 and 10, the people who lived farther south than Egypt in um, and the Egyptians themselves are said to be descendants of Noah's son, Ham. So they're Hamites rather than Shemites or Semites. Um, and, you know, one of the characteristics of folks who have sub-Saharan ancestry is they have darker skin. And so some 18th and 19th century racists started speculating that what the mark of Cain was, was darker skin. And that completely does not fit the biblical text or what the um, or what the uh, Hebrew audience would have understood it to be. In the ancient world, dark skin was not regarded as a curse at all. Uh, so this is a modern racist idea. But because it's associated with Cain, if you were to make vampires descendants of Cain, it would bring up th these thoughts for people who are aware of this tragic legacy. Uh, and it would serve as a distraction from what you're trying to do. And you might even have people reading your novel and saying, is he a crypto racist that is presenting black people as vampires or something? Yeah. And you really don't want that as a reaction to your novel. Uh, Patrick, uh, a lot of great uh, vampire questions. Thank you. Right in the perfect spirit of uh, weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Up next, a question from Marcin. I am a fan of all the Jimmy Aiken shows, and I wanted to ask regarding the situation in authoritarian countries. If I was a Catholic abducted by a government as a dissident and I requested they provide me with a Catholic priest to hear my confession and maybe give me sacraments, how do I... Oh, okay, who's moving the, the, the document on me? How do I know it's really a priest and not an imposter. And if he is an imposter and I don't know that, am I to believe that my confession was valid? Well, um, your confession, if he's not a real priest, the con the sacrament of reconciliation will not be valid because it can only be performed by a priest. However, if you have perfect contrition for your sins, where you turn away from your sins because you recognize God is infinitely good, you're already reconciled with him by that fact. 
And you could even be stimulating an act of perfect contrition in the act of confession itself. So even though the priest couldn't validly absolve you, you might be reconciled with God simply through the exercise of attempting to confess. As far as how to detect a a genuine priest from a non-genuine one, the way is to ask them questions. Ask things only a genuine priest would know, because if they're sending in a fake priest, he's he's probably not going to be extensively trained in, say, in Catholic thought and in Catholic theology. So I would think if I, if I was in the cell, I would think of obscure doctrinal questions, several of them, that a fake priest with minimal training would un, would not be likely to know the answer to, but that a genuine priest with real training would know the answer to. And so that's how I would go about discerning that. I also might try to fake him out um, the because um, I might casually mention something as a Catholic doctrine and get him to agree that it's a Catholic doctrine when in fact I know it's not. And so I might use a kind of probing test like that to say, Father, I just, you know, could you help me understand the church's teaching that? And then I name something that is not church teaching. Um, I wouldn't do something this obvious, but. In the novel Brideshead Revisited, uh, one of the daughters, Cordelia, plays a joke on a guy who's just coming into the church by telling him all about the sacred monkeys in the Vatican. And he later is like, I'm not saying there's not a good reason for this. I just want to know what the good reason is for the sacred monkeys in the Vatican. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, he's trying to have faith. He's just seeking understanding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, thanks uh, very much, uh, Marcin. I hope that's helpful to you. I hope you don't get picked up by the authorities in an authoritarian country. But uh, now you've got some strategies if you do. Uh, let's go to Thomas's uh, weird question now. Uh, we're not taking calls, by the way, because these uh, questions we gather up uh, from the Internet over the course of, you know, a matter of weeks. Uh, so get a sense of uh, the, the degree of weirdness around here sometimes when you realize that these questions over the course of weeks uh, come to us. All these uh, strange questions. This one is from uh, Thomas. Uh, On weird questions, you said it's possible that a human animal chimera could have a spiritual soul. If so, how would it be resurrected as a chimera or as a human? So um, for folks who may not know, a chimera is a creature that had, I mean, originally it was a mythological creature that had elements of other creatures stitched together. But in like a griffin or a sphinx, for example, part lion, you know, part human, part bird, whatever. Um, In a modern biological context, a chimera is a, a creature that has genetic material from more than one species and it's it's we can make chimeras uh these days for example we have these uh goats that generate that they implanted spider genes in them and so now the goats in their milk make spider silk and they tried farming the spiders to get the to get silk production up because you can use the silk in really good ways like make kevlar like protective you know, oh. bulletproof vests and stuff. Yeah. Um, but the problem with farming spiders is they kill each other. 
And so goats typically don't kill each other. And so the idea was, let's get goats that can produce spider silk that we can then refine for these industrial purposes. So they genetically edited some goats and gave them spider silk production capabilities. And now they're happily munching whatever goats eat, which is just about anything. The worst thing, though, is when they find the goats hanging from the ceiling fan. That has been happening a lot. And. Well, you, by their udders, yeah, um, with all that spider silk in the milk. Yeah. Um, now, there's a sense in which human beings already are chimeras, because one of the things that happens during the, at least according to the scientific account, because one of the things that happens during the course of evolution is we get illnesses like viruses and there is gene transfer as part of those uh so if you look at human dna it's already got lots of ancient viruses in it you know and those aren't part of our species also even more significant And this occurred very early on in the history of life. Um, You know how we've got these little things in our cells called midichlorians? I mean, mitochondria. (laughs) You have midichlorians. None of the rest of us do. But I know you do, Jimmy Aiken. We we all have mitochondria. It's 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 what's called an organelle, which means it's a tiny thing that's kind of like an organ. And it's part of each of our cells. It's not inside the nucleus. The nucleus is one organelle, but then we have these mitochondria which we inherit only from our mothers. And they serve uh, a function of energy production in the cell. And originally, it seems that when life first evolved on Earth under God's providence, cells did did not have mitochondria. Mitochondria were separate entities that then became, got used to living in ordinary cells and eventually just became part of them. And so that's another example of us, in a sense, already being chimeras because we have these organelles that originally, you know, a couple billion years ago were a separate species. So that's they've just become part of what it means to be human. Now, in terms of what happens in the resurrection, God could rewrite our DNA into something else. But I don't have reason to think that he would, since we already have ancient viruses and mitochondria. If someone had some additional cells spliced in from another species, like maybe so they would have better eyesight or something, maybe a little bird DNA, I would think God would let them keep that as long as it wasn't causing them a problem. But I don't know for sure. Um, But that would be my guess. Thanks, uh, uh, Thomas. Thanks uh, very much for that question. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, We go on to Ray's question now. I just discovered Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Where have you been, Ray? Where have you been? Everyone else knew all about it. And I am... Reward the joy of discovery. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) Sorry, Ray. Look at how negative I am on a Friday, Ray. I apologize. I'll start that again. I just discovered Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Congratulations, Ray. And I am loving it. My question for Jimmy is... Should a Catholic have second thoughts about working for the FBI, CIA, or other U.S. intelligence agencies? I just listened to the Mysterious World episode on Frank Olson, and that, along with the episodes about the Waco siege, the Ruby Ridge uh, incident, MK Ultra, and others, show a clear pattern, in my opinion, of clear disregard for human life and rights in some cases. And the above are all the ex- are just the examples that we know of. 
So uh, for people who may not be aware, Frank Olson was a scientist who was doing contract work for the CIA back in the 1950s as part of a program uh, that came to be known as MKUltra, which was a mind control program. The CIA was experimenting with different ways to try to manipulate people and control their minds, in some cases, destroy their personalities and rebuild new ones. And it was very brutal. Um, and Frank Olson had conscience objections. And it appears that he was murdered because uh, he was planning to go public with his objections. And the murder was set up to look like a suicide or an accident. Um, but Yes, that's an instance, as are Waco and Ruby Ridge, where government authorities acted without proper regard for human life. Now, having said that, there are also good people in the FBI and the CIA and other intelligence agencies. And in fact, we need invest criminally and in criminal investigative bureaus like the FBI. We need intelligence agencies like the CIA or the DIA or Naval Intelligence or Air Force Office of Special Investigations. We need things like that. And we need them to have good people in them. If you if you leave them in, if all the good people quit and left only the baddies in charge, then they really would be evil institutions. So we need good people in them. And there are good people in them. And they've done great service for America in many cases. Uh, but whether a particular person should be the one to join them. Uh, that's a matter of prudential judgment, you know, for that individual person. But we do need good people in institutions like that. Uh, thanks, Ray. Uh, this time for more questions. So I'm going to keep uh, moving. Uh, this one comes from Christian Jimmy. If Jimmy could spend a day with any historical figure, both living and not living, who would he choose? Why would he choose that person? And what kind of conversation would Jimmy like to have? Mine would be Jack Chick. And I'd ask him what he thought of Jimmy. Okay, so Jack Chick was an, a comic book artist. In fact, he was the and writer. He was the best-selling comic book writer in the world. He's he's sold like over a billion little. Uh, they're called Chick tracks, which are. Uh, evangelical tracts promoting the Christian faith. Um, he was also venomously anti-Catholic, and I happened to meet him one time, and I've written about that. Uh, I think if you got a chance to spend your day with Jack Chick and asked him about Jimmy Aiken, he would say, who? Yeah. <laughs> and he would probably barely remember me, if at all. Uh, having said that, my decision, I, I, I'm, I, I can't pick just one person, but the people I would pick would depend on a number of factors. One of them is, do they have to speak the same language that I do? Or will my TARDIS's translation circuits guarantee that we understand each other? Because it opens up a lot more possibilities if oh, translation yeah, yeah. is not an issue. Right. Also, do I get to bring along Wonder Woman's golden magic lasso of truth? Because some of the people I'd like to get answers out of might not be truthful otherwise. Uh -huh. um, now, I also have to say, OK, is this a goal to satisfy my personal curiosity or am I on a mission to change history by spending a day with someone? Because, you know, as Melody Pond says in Doctor Who, you've got a time machine. I've got a gun. Let's kill Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's assume I'm not going to change history okay. by anything I do. And then I would have to say, OK, well, am I allowed to satisfy my religious curiosity or would it be 
um, just general curiosity. Um, because obviously, you know, go to Jesus and get the answers to anything. Yeah. You know, uh, especially about religious matters. Um, and that would be kind of some people might say, ah, of course, he's Christian. He's an apologist. He's going to want to talk to Jesus and Paul and John and all those people. So that's maybe not the most interesting answer. So let's suppose um, that I'm not doing a religious investigation. It's just general curiosity, uh, wanting to be with somebody and ask them stuff. Yeah. Well, um, if I don't have to know the name of the person if a designated description will do, I one person I'd like to talk to is the author of the Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich Manuscript is sometimes thought of as the most mysterious book in the world. It was written on calfskin in the 1400s, and it's it seems to be what was called an herbal, um, which was a book describing plants and their medical uses and things like that. But it's written in a language nobody understands. It was clearly written in Europe, but because it's got a semi-European alphabet, but nobody can read it. And I would love to talk to the author of the Voynich manuscript and get answers about it. Another person I'd like to talk to. That And actually, for some of these, I could find their names, but the head librarian of the Library of Alexandria. And I'd love a tour of the stacks with my iPhone to record images of lost books. Yeah. yeah. Another person I'd like to talk to is Papias or someone who had a copy of Papias's exposition of the Logia of the Lord. So I could get images of that lost five books with my iPhone. Um, if it if I can't do things like that, I would be interested in talking to some Christian medieval people who wrote on esoteric subjects like St. Albert the Great, not about his theology, but he wrote about bunches of other stuff like alchemy and astrology and all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Um, or Hildegard of Bingen. She wrote about the same subjects. She also had an, an, a language that's very mysterious that she wrote in. Uh, Nostradamus, I'd be interested in talking to, because even though he's reputed to be a scholar of, I mean, even though he's reputed to be an astrologer, he, there's evidence that he actually was doing something else when he composed his quatrains. And he just said he was doing judicial astrology because judicial astrology was allowed at the time. Oh. It looks like what he was really doing was a practice called, this is the theory, a recent theory anyway, is that what he was really doing is a practice called bibliomancy, where you take a random book and flip to a random passage and interpret it as having uh, oh. precognitive or prophetic significance. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, so I'd love to find out his actual method. Another person of this kind of period that would be interesting to talk to would be John Dee, who was a mathematician, astrologer, astronomer, and occultist that uh, was in the time of Queen Elizabeth I, and he had just endless pages of conversations with angels written in an angelic language. And he would just be a fascinating, and, and it's just amazing the volume of this angelic text material he's got that we can't read. And it would be fascinating to talk to him. I mean, I'm not saying I buy all of his stuff, but it, he'd be a fascinating person to talk to. Another would be Daniel Douglas Hume, who lived in the in the 1800s. He was considered the greatest physical medium of all time. 
And he could do things according to the reports from upper class people in London who witnessed this stuff. They they said he would do things like levitate out the window of a second story of a house and levitate back in through a window on the first story of the house. He was investigated by the head of the Royal Society, which is Britain's prestigious um scientific society, a guy named Sir William Crooks. He was the guy who first found helium on Earth. Oh. And and he discovered the element thallium. So he's like a very respectable scientist. He would do things like strap Hume down so he could not physically influence anything in the lab, but Hume would then be able to physically influence things in the lab. And so he would be interesting to talk to another person that and this is would be a special lasso of truth case. And so might Hume, actually. But um, but I would be interested and I would definitely take a gun for this one. Zodiac. Oh, the Zodiac Killer? The Zodiac Killer was a serial killer in the Bay Area around the year 1970. He sent letters to newspapers in which he mocked the police and posed riddles and had crazy views. And he's never been caught, despite a bunch of clues. I've studied the Zodiac case extensively. And I would be interested to know, I'd be interested to get the lasso around him and ask him who he was and how much of the crazy things he said in his letters he really believed versus how much was just for show. I'm so glad we got that question asked. Who was that that asked that question? That was um, Christian, Christian. A- asked that question. Christian, thanks very much. You can always send your questions if you got weird questions for Jimmy. Uh, if you got an address for Jimmy, send it to him, but you can send it to us. Radio at Catholic.com is our address. Radio at Catholic.com. Once again, I want. So those were some great weird questions and great answers. Uh, before we continue on, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Teresa C., Adam P., Susan B., Sandra C., and Mark L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits, it's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, I thought I'd tell us about a couple of pieces of space technology uh, that have been proposed and have been actually proposed for a long time, although not a lot of people know about them. The first is a link to an article about NASA having a plan to use a solar sail to get to an asteroid. Now, a solar sail is sort of what you'd think. Here on Earth, we have ships that are moved by their sails catching wind. So those are wind power sails. And a solar sail can either catch the solar wind or light 
including even laser light, to push the sail along and thus the ship that's attached to it. And there have been plans um, or theoretical plans for using solar sails for a long time. You could even use them to get to other star systems. But NASA is doing baby steps, and so they have uh, a plan to try to use one, a small one, to get to an asteroid. Now, another piece of space technology, let's suppose we had a big solar sail ship that you wanted to go on. How would you get up into orbit to uh, to to board it? Well, you you could take a rocket or a really high flying plane, maybe. But um, those are fuel expensive. You know, you have to burn a lot of fuel to get up into orbit through a rocket or, you know, something that has a, a an engine like that. And so there's another proposal that has been made that would be potentially more fuel efficient for getting to orbit, and that's using a space elevator. And a space elevator is kind of what you might think. It's also kind of like Jack and the Beanstalk, where you have the beanstalk that grows up to the sky and then you and it just kind of sits there and um, you can then climb up the beanstalk to get really high up. And that's basically what a space elevator is. If you can get it high enough, if you can get a tether from the surface of the earth high enough and it's if it's strong enough, then the uh, tether will just remain there because you can play on the uh, effects of microgravity to help uh, keep it up. And then you don't need to burn as much fuel to get up there. You just need to ride up the elevator. And so that's all great. But, you know, as we know from Star Trek, new technology constantly fails. So, um, so, so if there's, Star Trek has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that. Don't introduce any new tech or it's going to break on you. Um, so what happens if a space elevator breaks? Well, we'll have an article that discusses that. And spoiler alert, you don't want to be in the vicinity of the tether when it breaks. <laughs> if anyone has seen is the uh, the Apple TV Plus uh, Foundation series, you can get a, a very graphic illustration of what happens when a space elevator tether breaks. So very good. Excellent. So, folks, uh, we would love to hear your theories about the topics that should be covered in the weird questions that he answered today. You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they've been doing on Mysterious World. Uh, if you haven't seen that yet, go by youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken and be sure and check out all the great work they've been doing to improve the video version of Mysterious World. And also, while you're there... Uh, please do uh, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification so that you get uh, alerts whenever we have a new video. Uh, we just recently passed 25,000 uh, subscribers on the channel, and I'm really trying to grow it. So I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe. Right. And you can also follow the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World as an audio podcast, an Apple podcast, Google podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, all the great places to get podcasts from. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.